Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The most interesting story for me this week had to do with this booming stem cell industry that's taking place in the U.S. While there are some legitimate medical uses for stem cells that have been discovered, there's a growing industry of clinics and doctors offering poorly understood products and often without much regulation. Patients are paying thousands of dollars for unproven treatments that claim to heal basically everything. And it works by getting a stem cell injection maybe into a joint like a knee or elbow. And these things can cost anywhere between $5,000 and $10,000. Often these stem cells are amniotic stem cells that are obtained via donation after a woman is given birth. And that's a really important distinction that we'll get to in this interview. We spoke to Caroline Chen. She's a healthcare reporter at ProPublica. And she joins us for these birth tissue profiteers. I got interested in working on this story because I saw this paper that was counting stem cell clinics. And as you mentioned, they've just exploded in the U.S. And I thought, how are there so many? Why are there so many? That's what got me started in the first place. So just to be clear for our listeners here, my story is about for-profit stem cell clinics that offer these stem cell treatments to people, often saying that they will treat a huge variety of diseases, basically anything you can think of, usually for $5,000 plus per injection. And I got really interested in a specific subset, which are made from birth tissue. And they're typically called amniotic stem cell treatments or sometimes umbilical cord stem cell treatments. And really was curious about the supply chain. How did these get made? What are people claiming about them? Is there any science behind them? That's how I got started. You went to a presentation that was done by a man named Dr. David Green, put on by uh, Atlas Medical Center, which was a local clinic that specializes in pain treatment. How did this seminar go? How did people react to the news? I went out to Texas to attend a seminar, which was being hosted by a local clinic. And the guy who was giving the seminar was a guy called Dr. David Green. He was introduced as a retired orthopedic surgeon. And he was selling amniotic stem cell treatments. He told the group there, there were about two dozen folks in the room, most of them were elderly, that his product had about 10 million live stem cells in them. And he said, here are some things that you could consider using it for arthritis, tendonitis, psoriasis, lupus, hair loss, face wrinkles, scarring, erectile dysfunction, heart failure, asthma, Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis, diabetes, kidney failure, like just about anything you could think about. Yeah. And then he said over 85% of patients benefit exceptionally from the treatment. And so he was really selling it. And you could tell that the people were really enthralled by his presentation. And I just had this really vivid moment where this woman who was sitting, you know, the row in front of me just like pumped her fist into the ears and she goes, stem cells, (laughs) you know, and she was just so excited about it. And I was so worried for her. Yeah. And people that are in these vulnerable stages of their lives, they're in pain. They're looking for anything that will help possibly avoid surgeries, things like that. So when something like this comes up, they're going to get excited for it. Cellular therapies could be a $2 billion global business. And with clinics popping up all over the place, doctors like Dr. Green saying that we can help you, these potential patients are are willing to go through anything 
to just help get rid of the pain or, or whatever ailments that they have on them. Absolutely. I think what was really striking to me, having talked to a bunch of patients as I've reported, is how much people are willing to spend for a little bit of hope. Typically, these clinics charge $5,000 plus for an injection. So if you do two knees, that's going to be $10,000. Some of them offer it as an intravenous treatment for a more systemic disease like lupus or multiple sclerosis. And typically, that starts at like $10,000. And patients are paying for this. Tell us a little bit about the supply chain. How do they get these stem cells? How do the clinics get it? And how is it all administered? I was really interested in the supply chain here because I was like, who's in this business? You know, why is this business exploding? So what I found was it starts with women who are asked to donate their birth tissue in the maternity ward. And we tried to find out what are they told. And we interviewed actually a lot of parents who have donated birth tissue in the past. And the problem we realized is that when you're just about to give birth, oftentimes it's like a few hours before a C-section, somebody comes up to you and says, oh, you know, your placenta would be medical waste. Otherwise, would you donate it? You're not really in the mindset to ask very careful questions. So we asked a lot of parents, like, did you ask, could this go for commercial use? Could somebody make money off of this? They're like, oh, no, we like, didn't think to ask that question. You know, or like, did you sign a consent form? And, and a lot of them were like, well, maybe I signed something, but I don't have a copy anymore. So it's like a very vulnerable moment where parents are pretty focused on like giving birth to a child. And there are very legitimate uses for some birth tissue. For example, umbilical cords have blood stem cells that can be used for the treatment of blood cancers like leukemia. That's proven. That's a good reason to donate your umbilical cord. But we realized that really parents weren't able to tell us, you know, where their birth tissue actually ended up going. So clearly some of them are somehow getting their way to these stem cell manufacturers. And as I did my reporting, what I found was, let's say you get a placenta for free. So what I was told by industry insiders is usually these manufacturers can get 200 to 400, sometimes even more, vials of products from one placenta, and it costs them about $50 per vial to make. And then they turn around and sell that vial to a clinic for about $1,000. So that's a big profit margin for the right. manufacturers. Then the clinics are saying, you know, I bought this for $1,000, I'm going to charge you $5,000, $6,000. So they're also making a pretty steep profit on that one vial. So just the economics showed me why this is so popular. Oh, yeah. Through. It's all starting with something you're getting for free and you're just making money on top of money. Let's distinguish what we're talking about. Also, we're talking about stem cells. A lot of the times when people think I'm going to get some type of stem cell treatment, they think about embryos. They think about embryonic stem cells. Mm -hmm. And those do have the potential to turn into a lot of other different cells. Those are the ones that really could be beneficial, but these are amniotic stem cells. These have already formed into certain cells. These aren't really the ones that are going to be able to regrow tissue and do a lot of these major life-changing things that some of these clinics are saying it's going to do. One thing that I realized as I reported was that the word stem cell gets used so broadly to cover so many different types of stem cells that it's really, really confusing for a layperson who's basically anybody who's not a stem cell biologist. Right. It's really hard for you to know one stem cell from another. And that term gets thrown around so much that it's kind of acquired this like magical aura where you hear stem cell and you think, oh, regenerate everything. And you don't really realize that there are many types of stem cells. So as you said, embryonic stem cells is what we've all started out as. And embryonic stem cells are the only stem cells that naturally can turn into every type of cell in the body. But by the time the baby is formed, your stem cells are stratified. So you have stem cells in your skin, 
they can form different types of skin cells. You have brain stem cells that can regenerate different types of brain cells, but like your blood stem cells aren't going to spontaneously turn into skin. Your skin stem cells aren't going to just turn into a kidney cell. So they're kind of tracked. And so I think what a lot of these birth tissue stem cell salespeople do is that they borrow the properties of an embryonic stem cell and apply it to their products. So, you know, I was at the seminar and, and the guy said, this can turn into anything you need it to become. And that is not scientifically proven. And there haven't been the studies to show that. A lot of times what's happening is these clinics, these doctors, they're blurring the science. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the article also, they're citing other studies where they might have been done in very small sample sizes and something could have mm -hmm. happened, but they're kind of extrapolating that and saying, well, see, this is exactly what it could do for you. So they're blurring right. the science on a lot of these issues. Typically, if you get a drug that has been approved by the FDA, it has been through pretty large human trials. So say like you're taking a blood pressure medication, there have been trials of hundreds of people to prove that it actually makes a difference to blood pressure, that there's a benefit and that it's safe. A lot of these products sold at stem cell clinics have never been through this type of trial before. So I can't tell you that it's going to help you because there's no data on it. We just simply don't actually know what they're going to do. Where is the FDA on this? You mentioned Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, and he said that the department was very lax in enforcing any rules related to this at all. I think the FDA in the last couple of years has finally realized that this is a big problem. And they've taken some steps in the last couple of years to start to regulate this industry. But the problem is they've left it for so long that the problem has gotten so big that, you know, former Commissioner Scott Gottlieb did say to me, like, they're in a position now where they've got a big problem. And he said it's hard to step in and actually apply the regulation now. So early on when this field was starting, I think the FDA saw it as not a priority because there were a few number of clinics and, you know, they were doing things that were relatively, relatively less risky, like saying knee injections. So they kind of left the industry alone. And now, like 10 years later, people are giving injections into people's eyes, into people's spines. They're giving it to people IV. And the FDA is now having to play catch up. Nobody wants, uh, obviously, anything bad to happen to somebody, even if you go through some of these treatments. But talk about some of the dangers that have arisen as some of these stem cells have been tainted with bacteria. Sometimes, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, um, they, some of the doctors say, oh, there's 10 million live stem cells in this. A lot of time, more than half of them have died because they, they mm -hmm. often they, they'll freeze them. They'll ship them to the clinics. And in that whole process, a lot of them have died. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> who's to know how effective it's going to be at that point? One of the things that I've tried to make clear here is that if it's not FDA approved, you don't know what is in the vial. Right. You don't know what you're getting. So even hypothetically, if birth tissue had some therapeutic benefit, you don't know what you are getting. And so there have been some infections. There was a case in California where a California-based distributor had a batch of amniotic stem cells that were infected with bacteria, including like E. coli. And at least 12 patients got those cells. And I talked to the daughter of a grandmother, an old lady, a grandmother in Texas who had received those cells and in a spinal injection and she turned septic and had wow. to be life flighted to a major hospital and she was weeks in rehab. And so it can go really badly because there is not that much oversight. And so you're really taking a gamble, not just with your wallet, but potentially with your health. The last question I have on this, because 
you know, this is just a big warning. You should always really do your due diligence on whatever these procedures are, who's administering them. A lot of times these doctors are not the best qualified anymore. You mentioned mm-hmm. Dr. Green at the beginning. He lost his license to practice medicine in 2009. They often tout a lot of people that have received the treatments and say, oh, I feel great. I feel mm-hmm. really good now. Is that the case? Do people, obviously there are some danger stories, but Do people say that they feel better after receiving some of these treatments? There definitely have been anecdotal stories where people say that they've been helped by amniotic stem cell treatment. But the question is, why? We don't know why because we're not doing the studies. So as I said, maybe there's something therapeutic in birth tissue that can be found. But until we actually do the studies, we're not going to know, was this a real effect? Was it a placebo effect? What was it in this tissue that actually helps patients? So as I mentioned, there are some researchers I've talked to who have examined some of these products, and they found that most of the cells are often dead or already dying. So they're like, well, it's not stem cells that's helping you then. It could be something else that's in the vial that's helping you, but we don't know what it is. So I think this is a case where there's an area that could maybe have some promise, but the marketing has gotten so far ahead of what we actually know scientifically. Caroline Chen, healthcare reporter at ProPublica. Thank you very much for joining us. And thanks for having me. There's never any shortage of political news. And this week, President Trump's taxes were released. Sort of. The New York Times had obtained the IRS tax transcripts for the president from 1985 to 1994, and what it shows is that there was a lot of money lost by Donald Trump. During that time, he lost money from his core businesses, mostly casinos and hotels, and it totaled more than $1 billion. It also helped him to avoid paying taxes for eight of those 10 years. For more on this, we spoke to Toby Eckert. He's the tax editor at Politico and told us what we do and what we don't know about Trump's taxes. We don't know a lot because his full taxes from any year have never been released publicly. Things have come out in drips and drabs from leaks that are coming to news organizations like The Times, like Politico, The Washington Post. And it's fairly limited information sometimes. It's just sometimes the first couple of pages of a state return he filed or a few pages of federal return. It it looks like the Times was able to get hold of more extensive information like that and kind of put together a narrative of his taxes and business dealings from those 10 years. These are being described as IRS tax transcripts. Is that different from the tax returns? Yeah, it is different from the returns, but some of the experts who the Times talked to said they are generally very accurate and reflect what is in someone's taxes and on their returns. Tell us a little bit about what the New York Times found out. They say that in 1985, the president reported losses of about $46 million from his core businesses, which were casinos, hotels, retail space, and apartment buildings. And then after that, he continued to lose money every year, as we said, totaling a little bit over $1 billion. He seems to have lost more money than almost any other individual American taxpayer in that time frame. There are all sorts of avenues available for people like Trump to ease their tax burdens when they're losing money. They can carry forward losses, which basically means if you lose money, 
money in one year, you can carry that forward to your next year's taxes as a write-off. Also, since he was a real estate developer, he had a lot of opportunity to depreciate his properties to lessen their value, which also would create quite a tax savings. The president defended himself in some tweets. He said that you always wanted to show a laws for tax purposes. It was all sport. It was part of doing business back then. Is that true? Is that a, an accurate characterization of how a, you know a lot of business developers, a lot of business people would play the game, would play the tax code? We did talk to you know a couple of tax experts today who were involved in tax advising during that period. You know, it was kind of the go-go period of New York City and the U.S. economy, and they've they've said, yeah, pretty much what Trump said reflects reality in terms of that atmosphere. Although some of was going on back then has since become illegal. It was you know kind of a gray area back then. Trump has made no secret of the fact that he has strive to pay as low amount of taxes as possible. And it's something that he says makes him a smart businessman. The Democrats in the House right now are still trying to get the president's tax returns from 2013 to 2018. They want to look into some other stuff, how, you know, how low tax rate he paid. They also want to know if there's anything they can get out of there from possible conflicts of interests that the returns could show. So there's still an ongoing fight to get the latest tax returns from the president. There's a a law that dates to 1924 that says the heads of the tax committees in Congress can request people's tax information from the IRS and that the Treasury Secretary, quote, shall, unquote, provide that information. But the Treasury Department on Monday rejected the request from the House Ways and Means Committee saying that the Democrats needed a legitimate legislative reason for obtaining those and that they hadn't established one. The next step appears to be that the Democrats are going to go to court and try to force these returns. Toby Eckert, tax editor at Politico, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Anytime. Subpoenas, subpoenas, subpoenas. They're all over the place right now. The latest person to get subpoenaed by the Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee is Donald Trump Jr., the president's son. They want him to come back in and answer more questions about previous testimony he already gave to Senate investigators in relation to the Russia investigation. This, All this stuff has to do with the possible Trump Tower in Moscow. They want to see if he was maybe lying about uh, what he actually knew. He was throwing it on Michael Cohen. So that's just a a back and forth there. The the only thing that's really interesting is that it's a Republican-led committee that is calling him back in. And the GOP was giving Senator Richard Barr a lot of flack for actually going through with that subpoena. One of the other big things that happened was the Attorney General Bill Barr being held in contempt of Congress. The House Judiciary Committee voted to go with that. Yeah, on Wednesday, they voted to hold Bill Barr in contempt of Congress because he didn't turn over the unredacted Mueller report to them. And this is hours after President Trump asserted executive privilege to shield that full report. So he had about two weeks where he could have given it out and he waited until the last second. And then Trump ultimately trumped him. The committee voted 24 to 16 on that contempt vote. It goes to the full Congress now. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. I mean, the next thing that really happens is the House is going to file a lawsuit to enforce that subpoena. 
but they say that this legal process could take years, which basically stalls the whole effort anyways. And beyond that, there's a lot of other stuff going on. There could be a possible contempt citation for Don McGahn, the former White House counsel. They subpoenaed him for documents related to the investigation. Nancy Pelosi is calling this a constitutional crisis because the White House refuses to comply. So the fight is going to just keep going on. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. 